All right. If you want to uh, make your way back to a seat, if you're out in the out in the lobby and you want to make your way in, before we before we jump into our our passage in Romans today, uh, I just want to I want to take a moment and do kind of a little uh, like family housekeeping here, if you will. Um, I am going to be, after this morning, I'm going to be gone uh, for the next month. And uh, I want to just take a, a couple of minutes to explain uh, why that is and where I'm going and what's happening and, and how you could join Melody and I in praying over that time that I'm going to be away. Um, the last two and a half years here, uh, a little over two and a half years, we've been in the middle of a transition here at our, at our church, a transition of leadership. And that transition has taken uh, a, a mental, emotional, spiritual, physical toll on me. And it's not probably anything out of the ordinary for um, a church going through a season like the one that we are in the midst of. Uh, but in the midst of that toll, in that transition, um, I have, I've arrived in a place where uh, I need a little bit of help getting through uh, kind of the season and the stage of life that I find myself in right now. And the best gift that I can give this church outside of the message of the gospel is to be in a place of full uh, emotional, spiritual, mental health. And that requires uh, a healthy heart and a healthy soul. And so over uh, the next month, two things are going to be taking place. The first is that Melody and I are going to be attending um, a, a place in Colorado called Potter's Inn. It was recommended to me by uh, a mentor in ministry who a number of years ago found himself in a very similar place and went and spent a week at this ministry um, and found it to be incredibly life-giving. And so at his recommendation, Melody and I are going to be going to spend some time there. So we leave uh, this week and we'll be there for a week and then uh, after that, for about a week, I'm going to be using um, some study leave sabbatical time in order to be processing what it is that we learned and heard out there, trying to figure out how to best apply those uh, practices, disciplines, um, reminders to my life in a practical way so that I can do this job at this church for a long time, which is my desire. The second thing that's going to be happening over the next couple of months, or over the next few weeks, next month, is that I'm going to be having a, uh, a procedure done on my heart. For the last six or seven years, I've been uh, experiencing uh, a heart condition that we had a hard time getting a diagnosis on. And it's taken a number of years for us to figure out exactly what that is, but praise the Lord, over the course of this summer, we finally got some uh, finality on that some resolution on it, and there's a procedure that can fix it and fix it for the rest of my life. And so on the morning of Monday, October 8th, I'll go in to have that procedure, and then I'll need some recovery time on the backside of that. And so uh, there's 
a great staff and great leadership that is going to just continue moving things forward while I'm gone. Um, we're going to continue just plugging along through Romans. And the next couple of weeks, as we finish out Romans 12, Joe Stewart will be teaching. So prepare to have your toes stepped on in like the most wonderful way possible. And then uh, we'll roll into uh, what will be kind of our third like breakout series about what it means to be humbly unified as a local church, but also in the, the larger scheme with the global church. And so um, everything here will be totally fine while uh, I'm out. I'll be out for four weeks total. And I wanted to just offer a few ways that you could be praying over the next few weeks, should you choose to do so. Uh, the first is that the next, the next couple of weeks would provide both the time of refreshment and rest for Melody and I, as well as practical tools going forward. Uh, mostly those would be uh, for me. <laughs> and so... Um, practical tools for me to be able to use so that um, burnout doesn't become a reality in this role so that I can continue to serve in a healthy way and in a way that's best for our church and for our congregation. And then the other piece would be praying over that procedure on October 8th and the recovery that will follow. And then I'll be back in late October, um, hopefully feeling heart healthy, but also heart and soul healthy um, stepping back in to continue to lead here. Sound good? Um, I am, I'm really excited about um, our passage today. And so while I wanted to be able to just kind of clarify what's going to be happening over the next month or so, I want Romans 12, 1 and 2 to be the focus of what we're doing this morning. Sound good? Awesome. Let's pray and then we'll get started. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity for us to gather as a church body, Lord, and to worship you. God, to worship you in song and to worship you in baptism and celebrating transformed eternities. God, to worship you through your word. God, to worship you in prayer and in fellowship as a, as a group of believers here. Lord, I pray that in all of those things you would be glorified. I pray that in all of those things your son would be lifted up. God, I pray that in all of those things, Lord, we would move ourselves to the side and we would put you at the very center. God, and that as we do that here in this place together uh, for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, God, that that would just be representative of what we're doing in our lives all the time outside of this place. God, I pray that our worship is glorifying and, and pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be here and move among us. Would you empower your word to transform hearts and lives this morning? God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to be, last week we looked at Romans 12, 1. Today we're going to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2 and kind of put them both together. So let's just read what Romans 12, 1 and 2 has to say and then we'll dive in. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what, the, what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Last week in Romans 12.1, we saw that a gospel-centered life is a life of continual, total, rational sacrifice. That in view of God's mercy in the sending of his son for sinful humanity, that those of us who have received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, we are to do the logical thing. 
the only logical thing in response to that mercy, which is to present ourselves as a sacrifice to the Lord, abandoned to him for whatever he wants to do in and through us, and that that act is one of continual living sacrifice, that we do that day by day, moment by moment, and that that act is one that is total. It involves the fullness of our bodies, the entirety of our lives. Romans 1 through 3 made some pretty strong statements about the way it is that sin exists in the body of a human being. We were told that our minds are corrupted and that they suppress the truth, that our thinking is senseless, our passions are disgraceful, that we practice deceit with our lips, that our tongues spread poison, our mouths are filled with cursing and bitterness, our feet are swift to shed blood, our eyes look away from God rather than seeking Him. Is it any wonder then that in Romans 12:1, Paul says you present your body as a living sacrifice, that our feet would walk in his paths, that our lips would speak the words of truth and life, that our mouths and tongues would proclaim the goodness of the gospel, that our hands would serve those around us and lift up the fallen, that our arms would welcome the lonely and the unloved, that our ears would hear the cries of the distressed and the rejected, that our eyes would look expectantly to the Lord. And as we'll see today then, that our minds would be renewed. We continually, totally, rationally present ourselves, present our bodies to the Lord, that the Holy Spirit might do what he wants in, through, and to us. So then we come to Romans 12, verse 2. What we're going to see this morning is that a gospel-centered life is a life of rejecting worldly conformity by submitting to the Holy Spirit's transformation. Let me just Read verse 2 again. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 2 gives us the second pleading or urging that Paul presents in light of the mercy of God, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul gives two kind of pleading, urging calls to believers. The first one, Present yourself as a living sacrifice. The second one comes in the form of a negative and a positive. It comes in the form of two verbs, not to be conformed, but to be transformed. The negative one comes first. Do not be conformed to this age. The word therefore conformed is suskamatizo. Suskamatizo. Do not go on continually conforming. The root word in the middle of that is schema. It's where we get our word scheme from. The basic definition is not to form to another's pattern. A bunt cake conforms. You pour that dough into that tray and it comes out looking like a bunt cake. It conforms. A chameleon conforms shifting its color to whatever happens to be around it. The mercury inside of a thermometer conforms to the temperature of the room or the environment that it's placed in. That is conformity, forming yourself to another's pattern. This word, suskamatizo, only gets used one other time in the New Testament and comes in 1 Peter 1.14, if you want to jot that down, where Peter encourages very similar to Paul here. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the pattern of your former ignorance. What are we not to conform to? Well, we're not to conform to, as the CSB translation says, this age. 
If you're holding an NIV, it might say the pattern of the world. ESV just says do not be conformed to the world. If you've got an NLT, it says do not be conformed to the behaviors and customs of this world. We're not to conform to this world or age that exists around us. And so I want us to just be really clear about what does the New Testament mean when it talks about the world? What is, what is the New Testament talking about when it mentions the world? It's certainly not talking about the physical form of the world. Do not be conformed to a globe. That's not what the New Testament is talking about. The world or this age, as the CSB says, when it's mentioned in the New Testament, is something that is passing. It's something where if you've read the end of the the book, the end of the Bible, you know that this age and this world is not something that's going to just exist forever. That there will be a time that comes where a new heaven and a new earth, a new world is created. And there's no sin in that place. So this world or this age is passing. Paul says, don't be conformed to a world or to an age that ultimately is not going to exist forever. Don't be conformed to something that's passing. But it's more than that. The world or this age is lived in opposition to or without reference to God. Romans 1 made that very, very clear. Paul says, don't be conformed to something that lives in opposition or without reference to God. If you've made a a profession that you've received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, then don't live in opposition to the God that's poured out grace upon you. Don't live without any sort of reference to the God who not only created, but also made a way for you to be saved. The world or this age is lived in the brokenness and the sin that resulted from the fall. Romans 6, do not offer your body or any of its parts as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't conform to that pattern any longer. Don't conform to a pattern of sin and brokenness when you've been transferred out of Adam and into Christ. You've been moved from Adam to Christ. You've been moved from this pattern of brokenness into a pattern of Christ's righteousness. So don't conform to the old one any longer, Paul says. The world or this age has lived under the corrupting influence of Satan. We should not conform. Do not be conformed to that any longer. Romans has referred to the world or this age in a language of up to this point that talks about flesh, that the pattern of this world or this age is one that's lived in response to our flesh rather than in response to the Holy Spirit. Conformity to the world is a mindless mimicking of the behaviors, the outlook, the dispositions, the motivations, the thought patterns of the broken world that's all around us, like a bunt cake or a chameleon, or the mercury in a thermometer, we just match what exists outside of us. So the urging, Paul's pleading, is for those who have been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ to no longer live in a way that conforms to that pattern, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That verb, so there's the positive. The negative, do not be conformed. The positive, be transformed. That verb is metamorpho. Do not go on being continually transformed, or do go on being continually transformed, excuse me. Metamorpho is where we get the word metamorphosis. It means a complete change in form, nature, or appearance. A caterpillar transforms into a butterfly. 
there's a metamorphosis that takes place. It goes from being one thing to being entirely another. Whereas a thermometer conforms to the temperature around it, a thermostat transforms an environment. If I walked over to the wall and cranked it down a few degrees, all the ladies would start pulling out like cardigans and stuff because it gets cold in here. It would get cold. If I went over there and cranked it up a few degrees, it would get very hot. I could transform the environment in this room via the thermostat. That's metamorphosis, metamorpho. That's a transformation rather than conforming. This word only has three other uses in the New Testament, and two of them come in a very intriguing place. Two of them happen in the Gospels and in reference to Jesus' transfiguration. If you want to jot these down, it's Matthew 17, 2 and Mark 9, 2. In Matthew 17, 2, we're told that he, Jesus, was transfigured in front of them. He was metamorphosed, if you will, in front of them. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Mark 9, 2 says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Here's why this matters. Jesus was totally, completely transformed up there on the mountain at the transfiguration. He was transfigured into something that was entirely different. And the sight of it was so amazing to Peter, James, and John that they were left completely dumbstruck by it. They are totally captivated by what they see when this happens. They're so enamored by it, in fact, that they want to build for themselves these shelters and like stay up there on the mountain and stay that way forever. And Jesus says, no, we're not, we're not coming up here in order to do that. We need to go back down. And so Paul picks up that word in order to convey the following, that the transformation that happens within the life of a believer, within the character and the conduct of a believer, should be so captivating that it leaves people almost confused by what they're seeing. That if you're rejecting conformity and you're embracing transformation, the result should be that there is no doubt that you are something new. You are something entirely different. Remember Paul's theological grounding for all of this in Romans 5 and Romans 6. You've been transferred from in Adam to in Christ. That's Romans 5. Romans 6, because of that transfer, you've got new life. It has been given to you, and now the Holy Spirit is working it inside of you. We've been transferred from in Adam to in Christ. Now the encouragement is to be transformed from the image of Adam into the image of Christ. And how is that transformation supposed to take place? Well, Romans 12:2 tells us that it happens by the renewing of our minds. The third usage of the verb metamorpho in the New Testament comes in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We're told, we all with unveiled faces are looking in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is spirit. This sort of transformation by the renewing of our mind happens by the work of the Holy Spirit and it happens in alignment with God's word. Our minds are to be renewed by the truth of God's word being applied to our minds and our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit. That is Romans 8 kind of work. That's the Holy Spirit taking all the blessings of our salvation, the blessings of our justification and applying them into our lives. 
that process, if you remember from when we talked about pursuing holiness, that's one of active submission. There is effort involved in being transformed, but you are not ultimately the vessel of transformation. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the one who does that work inside of a believer. We are active in making it happen. We're in God's word. We're praying for the Holy Spirit to transform us. We are being obedient to what the word says. We are being moldable and offering ourselves, presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice and then allowing the Holy Spirit to do the sort of transformative work that would take us from being one thing to being entirely something different. And that battleground, Paul says, is in your mind. That the truth of the word of God, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the commands of the Lord go from being something that you live in opposition to to being something that you live in submission to. That the way that you view the world around you is no longer according to the pattern of how everybody else views the world around us, but we view the world around us through the lens of scripture, through the lens of the gospel. We're increasingly trying to see the world around us through the eyes of God, through the eyes of Jesus Christ, that the things that break his heart would begin to break ours. And that begins, Paul says, by a transformation, a renewing of our mind. And where does it land us? It lands us with the ability to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but I do want to take just a moment. God's will, when we talk about God's will... There's an objective nature to that, and there's then a subjective nature to that. The objective will of God for every single person who places their faith in Jesus Christ is laid out for us in his word. He's done that for us already. He has given to us his will. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're wondering what the will of God is, start with the Bible. There is plenty inside of there to tell you what to do every day for the rest of your life. And it is objective and it is true and it is for every single person who places their faith in Jesus Christ. Then there are some times where we talk about a more subjective will of God. The leadings of the Holy Spirit within the life of a believer. The promptings of God that we feel inside of our heart because the Holy Spirit is alive and active inside of us. That subjective will of God is always in alignment with the objective will of God. If you feel like God is leading you to do something that you can find no basis for in scripture, that's probably not God, it's not. It might be indigestion or just your sinful flesh. Those are the options. The subjective will of God always operates within the umbrella of God's objective will. And you can learn how to discern that subjective will as you learn to walk in the objective one. I'm convinced that we feel and learn and know what it is that God is leading and prompting us to do as we walk in obedience to what he has already commanded us to do. You can't live in opposition to the objective will of God and think that God is going to pour out for you some sort of subjective will that he has for you. Because if you're living in opposition to this, you've totally hardened your heart to what the Lord might want to say to you otherwise. So when we talk about knowing what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God, it starts with the objective. And we walk in obedience to that. And then as our heart is soft and obedient and humble before the Lord, we become sensitive to the stirrings of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we can live in in obedience and humble submission to that inside of us as well so that we're walking in obedience to the objective will of God and we're hearing and responding to God's subjective promptings and leadings inside of us. Starts with the objective, 
then we discover and we learn how to live in, in one walking with the Holy Spirit, like Romans 8 said. There's the text. You present your body as a living sacrifice. That is kind of implication of the gospel, number one. And then implication number two, you, you give yourself up to being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Reject conformity by submitting to the Holy Spirit's transformation. The teaching segment of this time is over. I'm going to preach at you a little bit. I'm going to be gone for a month, which means I can say a lot of stuff, and I'm not going to check my email for a month. So here's what I want to do. I think for most of us, when we hear when we think about conforming to the pattern of this world versus being transformed by the renewing of our minds, I think we tend to think about blatant, outright, kind of high-handed, in-your-face God kind of sinning. And I think for most of us, especially those who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, we've grown through a lot of those kinds of urgings. Now, we still have moments where we're wrestling with our own flesh and where we're sinning in an outright sort of way, but for the most part, We're growing into getting a handle on those sorts of things. And so we think to ourselves, when we hear something like this, I'm good. But the influence of the world and our ability to conform to it seeps into every area of life. And so oftentimes what happens, I think, in the life of an individual believer or in the life of the church as a whole is that we dress up conformity in Christian clothing and then pretend we're being transformed. We take conformity to the world We throw some Christian verbs on it or we throw some Christian ideas around it and then we pretend that we're being transformed. The New Testament has a name for people who do that and it's called a Pharisee. That sort of living is not actually transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is worldly conformity that we give the guise of Christianity to. Now I'm gonna give a whole bunch of examples here. Here's your job. Some of these are not going to be about you. You know that for sure. There's no reason to try to position yourself inside each and every one of these. Some of these very well may include you. And it's your responsibility to get into a posture of submission before the Lord and say, am I conforming or do I need to be transformed? Sound good? This is going to be uncomfortable for everybody, myself included, because our church falls victim to some of these. So, Are we conforming or are we being transformed? Here's the first one. The pattern of our world and of our age is consumerism, especially in the suburbs. We are takers, not givers. And we drag that right into our church experience. I'm not going to speak for every single person in here, but I could pull up the list from our church and show that the vast majority of the people who call LCF their church home do primarily taking and no giving. We interact with the church as a consumer rather than a contributor. Here's the problem with that. You are the church. You the person. This building is a place where the church Gathers, And so if you view church as primarily existing to serve you, then you need to understand what you're saying is that you think that you need to exist to serve you. And if you're not going to serve, what serving is there happening? 
if we're just going to consume, who is going to serve? What is the church going to be doing? And this is something where the kind of modern Western church is sliding further and further and further into this consumerism. We want to show up to services. I can't tell you the number of times a service gets over and I'm standing back there at the door kind of saying goodbye to people or I'm standing up here and someone walks up to me and they say, great service. You know where you say that? At a restaurant, great meal. I want to say, what did you contribute? Did you worship? Were you praying? Were you praising the Lord? Were you glorifying him? A great service isn't about me standing up here running my mouth. A great service is about Jesus being lifted high. It's about the gospel being proclaimed. And that is the job of the church, all of us. And so we need to be contributors, not conformers. What we do is we think that showing up to a building is some sort of transformation. But what that is, is that that is putting Christian clothing on worldly conformity. And we need to get that up on the altar and make a sacrifice of it. We treat church like we treat where we're going to go to dinner at night. And then we react to church like we react to the meal we just got. How was the lighting? How was what was presented? How was the music? Was the person who spoke entertaining? That's what you do at a restaurant. Restaurants exist to serve you. We are the church. The people in this room are the church. And when you get adopted into the family of Christ, you become a contributor, not a consumer. Next. Worldly conformity is about self-promotion. That's the default way that our society exists right now. Whether it be on social media or in the way that it is that we conduct ourselves, we make a lot of our lives about the promotion of ourselves, our thoughts, our ideas, our image, our desires, and we kind of cast those out there into the world for everyone to see. It is about me, 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 me. We get involved in causes or activities because they make us feel good. We want to go on mission trips for the pictures and what it might do in us rather than what it might do for the proclamation of the gospel in another place. We post photos of our quiet time, not in an attempt to shed light on anything about the glory of God or the truth of the gospel, but in order to attract attention to the fact that we were in the word and our coffee looked pretty. That is self-promotion with Christian clothing on it. And it needs to be sacrificed. It needs to be transformed because transformation becomes about gospel proclamation. That you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you're giving your body up, presenting it as a living sacrifice, and the transformation that happens inside of you is no longer about the promotion of yourself, but the proclamation of the gospel. Worldly conformity with Christian clothing on is just putting Christian words around the same self-promotion that the rest of the world does. That is the pattern of our age. Transformation is the Holy Spirit working inside of you to make life not about you, but about the gospel. Gospel proclamation. Here's the next one. Faux outrage is the internet currency right now. It's what gets seen. It's what gets noticed. It's what gets shared. It's what gets liked. And so we fall into line. And we think that doing so with things that come from certain political backgrounds or 
articles that come from certain people or videos from certain individuals who might say some things that sound kind of Christian or come with headlines like, check out so-and-so's total takedown of such-and-such, that that is somehow helpful in the current climate that we have that exists around us. All that's doing is putting Christian clothing on worldly conformity. We share those videos of people who are just, they're sitting in their car, and they've got their phone propped up, looking at them, and they're just ranting against something. And it feels kind of good to click the share button. And yet, have you ever watched one of those videos and thought to yourself, I feel more at peace. I feel like the Spirit of God just fell upon me, and like I have greater love for the people around me because I watched that video. No, your blood pressure rises. You get worked up. All of a sudden, you're angry. You're, you're hunting around Facebook to get in the comments and start beating on somebody. That's worldly conformity, even if it's about a Christian thing. It's not actually helpful. Those conversations, those interactions are not actually beneficial. So we need to lay down the fake outrage we need to do some reading in James about our tongue and its power to set fire to everything. And we need to allow ourselves to be transformed so that there's thoughtful engagement that happens. Are there places where Christians should absolutely stake their flag into the ground and say, this thing is not true? Absolutely. But does that interaction need to take the same shape as the way that our increasingly divided world is interacting with each other? No. We are something different. We have been transformed. The way that we engage with these things should look different than the way that the world engages with these things. We need to get our Twitter fingers, our Facebook comment, like tough guy postures, up there on the altar and make a living sacrifice and be transformed so that we're interacting in a different way. I got a couple more of these. Image maintenance versus genuine vulnerability. Everything about our modern suburban living is set up for isolation. From our neighborhoods to our office spaces to the very way that coffee shops set themselves up. We don't live in communities anymore. We live as collections of individuals. We don't hang out on front porches anymore. We hang out on back patios with our big privacy fences where no one can see us. That's the pattern of the world. And as connected as we are right now globally, we're as lonely as we've ever been. The world is at our fingertips, and yet we're worlds apart from one another. And then the pattern of our world is to give the appearance of letting people into our lives by sharing, sharing status updates, sharing photos, tagging clever captions, throwing cute filters on things, and it's all fake. It's nothing more than image maintenance. You decide when and where you let someone see into your life. You decide how much they see of it, what it sounds like, what it looks like, what angle the picture's taken from. I posted a picture of our dog the other day on Friday. Uh, Melody saw the picture and she said, there's a dirty towel hanging there. <laughs> there is. Sometimes our house is dirty. It's just, that, but that's the way we operate that we, we put this shiny veneer on things and then act like we're being so wildly vulnerable. If you're in a small group, listen at your small group next week or this week when it's time to share prayer requests. 
someone's going to say something along the lines of my neighbor's aunt's son's grandchild's pet fish wasn't acting normal the other day and could use some prayer. And then, then we're all going to feel like, bared my soul, really opened up, shared with these people that I'm supposedly living life alongside, as if that is vulnerability. No, that's putting the Instagram filter on your life as if everything is fantastic. That's not true. When was the last time you walked into your small group or into the group of people that you regularly interact with that you would call your Christian community and confessed sin? I mean, you walked in and said, this is what's going on in my life. It is dark and it is black and it is ugly, but it's the truth of the matter. When's the last time you walked in and said, here's my life's hang up right now. Here's this hurt I can't seem to get past. Here's this idol I can't let go of. I need this community to pray. That is genuine vulnerability. We don't do that. We maintain an image. And we might throw Bible verses into the caption. We might throw quotes from Christian books down into the status or whatever the case might be. And all we've done is take worldly conformity, throw some Christian clothes on it, and try to pretend like it was actual transformation. That's not what the Holy Spirit wants in us. We need to get our Instagram filters, our Facebook statuses, up there on the altar and make a living sacrifice because we should be something different than the world around us. Next, we like to look for loopholes in the commands of God. Here's what I mean. Everyone think back to when you were dating, particularly when you were in high school. Maybe you're dating right now and you're in high school. You've got all the hormones and all the emotions of dating involved and you strolled into your youth pastor with a burning question. How far is too far? How far is too far? You wanted to know where the loophole was. I get that the Bible tells me to live a particular way, but I want to find the gap in what the Bible says and and kind of like nestle myself in there and make it as wide as I can. Our world, our age loves loopholes. We want to find them in everything. We do it as adults too. We just talk about it in much more nuanced ways than our hormone-laden teenage self did. At what point am I actually lying? How little gets me by when it comes to spending time with the Lord? If this thing that scripture tells me not to do really only harms myself and no one else, is it such a big deal if I do it? That's how the world operates. Find the loophole. Snuggle yourself in there. Get real comfortable inside of it. And then anytime somebody challenges you on it, say, it was a gray area or something like that. Transformation is learning to love the command. To love the commands of the Lord. To cherish obedience to the Lord. To cherish the word of God. To trust that what he tells us is for our good. Don't look for loopholes. That's conformity, worldly conformity. Love the command. And then last but not least, the motto of America, right? The American dream is you can be whoever you want. You can do whatever you want. That life is mostly about self-improvement. Be the best you. 
Here are some ways to do it. Go to a bookstore and check out the self-help section. Read the titles. That section is huge. Then go over to the Christian section and read the titles in the Christian living area and you'll find they sound startlingly similar. That's because we drag that self-made American dream mentality into our Christian spheres and we call it biblical. We put Christian clothes on worldly conformity. The Bible doesn't exist for self-help. In fact, if you read the Bible, it's calling you to self-abandonment. Get yourself out of the way. You don't need self-help. Yourself is the problem. And more of you is not going to fix anything. You need to get yourself out of the way and let Jesus Christ take over. That is transformation. We don't need self-improvement. We need self-abandonment. That's what Romans 12:1 is all about. You put yourself on the altar as a living sacrifice continually, totally. It's the only thing that's logical. And you let yourself be transformed entirely. That's the response to the gospel. Starting in Romans 12, 3, Paul's going to tell us to do all kinds of stuff, but none of, it's going to be ha- none of it's going to be possible and none of it's going to happen if Romans 12, 1 and 12, 2 aren't something that we hold near and dear. Brian, come on up. In view of the limitless depths of God's mercy, we step up to the altar with our whole body every day. We drag our worldly conformity right up there to the altar. And what we find is not an angry deity. We find the open arms of a loving father. We find the broken, bruised, crushed body of Jesus Christ on that altar already in our place and the Holy Spirit waiting in power for us to surrender and submit so that he might transform. That's why walking up to the Romans 12, one altar is not a scary or dreadful process. It is life-giving and life-transforming and it molds the body of Christ into the body of Christ that the gospel of Christ might become compelling to the world that's broken and hurting and in need of it. Get up there on the altar. Discover that there's no place you would rather be. There's no safer place than to be right there. There's no more place of greater joy. There's no place that offers more life than that altar. But we've got to reject conformity, embrace the transformation that the Holy Spirit brings as we make ourselves a living sacrifice. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stand up. Let's worship together.